Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Isaiah is the first of the major prophets. You probably remember we call them the major prophets simply because their books are larger than the minor prophets. And we're going to work through the entire book of Isaiah over the coming months, a rather daunting task. I'm telling you this because it helps to be mentally prepared for what we're doing and to even develop a conviction for what we're doing. And what are we doing? Well, we're immersing ourselves in the book of Isaiah. And we're immersing ourselves by doing that, we're immersing ourselves in the way God thinks and in the, and learning the way that He truly is. And we're growing in our understanding of what He's done for His people. Uh, as I study Isaiah, one thing that's abundantly clear is Isaiah is very strongly theologically structured. And it's, uh, it's rich and deep and glorious and powerful. Uh, well, why is it important to do things like work through a book like this? Not that that's the only thing we do, but why is it important to do that? Well, because if we jump around from Scripture to Scripture based on our curiosities or what we perceive as our needs, then there's a tendency to emphasize what we deem important or necessary. There's a tendency to dwell on the subjects that we want to dwell on. But are the subjects that we consider most important or interesting the same subjects that God considers most important or interesting? In other words, if you sat down in a classroom where God was teaching, would it be more important for you to ask God each question that popped into your mind or that you thought was of most relevance? Or would it be more important for us to say, God, what do I need to be taught? Well, obviously, it would be the second. And that's precisely what we have here in the Scriptures. God teaching us on the subjects that He deems necessary so that we are fully and firmly and deeply established in who He is and what He's done. And so we endeavor to establish the church in that way as well. God emphasizes what He means to emphasize. And He dwells on what He means to dwell on. And we want to follow his line of thinking. All right, let's get right to the text this morning. Here's Isaiah chapter 2. Please follow along as I read the chapter, okay? Now, it's 22 verses, so you'll need to follow along. There's a lot going on in here, and this will be our main reading for the morning. So follow along, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem... It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. 
because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into a rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Now as we read, you may have noticed that the chapter begins on a hopeful, encouraging vision of the future of what's to come. But that's only the beginning. The rest of the chapter is rather dark. And so we're going to talk about what's going on here. And by the way, it can be a little challenging at times to tell who exactly is speaking to who. There's Isaiah, there's the Lord, uh, there's Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel, and uh, there's the Lord speaking to the people of Israel. And it can be a little confusing at times, but I think if you follow along, you get the gist as you go right through the flow, even though there's not necessarily a transition that tells you. You pick it up from the context. And so we're going to talk about what's going on here by pulling out three principles from the text, okay? But first, here's the guiding theme that I'm working with. Let me give you the guiding theme I'm working with. Um, That's a good line too, but it's a different sermon. Cast away every idol you trust, because in the end the Lord alone will be exalted. Cast away every idol you trust, because... In the end, the Lord alone will be exalted. Cast away. That's a good term, right? Cast away. Throw out. Think of a castaway on an island. You know, someone's shipwrecked and, and they're cast away. They're, they call them castaways. They're left on an island. They're left and forgotten. No one can find them. And over enough time, people forget about them. They assume they must be dead. That's not a good thing for a person. But that's what we must do to our idols. Cast them away. Cast them away and exalt the Lord. So let's gain three biblical principles from Isaiah chapter 2. First of all, let the end direct the means. Let the end direct the means. Now, your mind is probably jumping to the ends justify the means. And of course, that's not what I'm saying. Christian method should match the message 
Christian means, the means that we employ, they do matter. The way we do something to achieve a particular purpose or result does matter for the Christian. I'm not saying that the ends justify the means. Rather, what I'm saying is that we of all people should have the workings of our lives directed, instructed by the end of all matters. And you know that often people think of the afterlife in ethereal terms. In other words, they think only in terms of, of a mystical realm or a spiritual dimension. And they think of disembodied people in a spiritual state just as spirits. But that's not all that we see in the Scripture. The afterlife, what is to come, the final state, is not simply disembodied and ethereal or mystical. Well, rather, I should say spiritual. And it's not what we see here in the first five verses of Isaiah. Instead, we see something very concrete. In these first five verses, we get a vision of the mountain of the Lord and, and what will take place there. Isaiah says this is going to happen in the later days. Now, you remember, you may remember, because we just went through, we went through first and second Samuel, we went through, uh, first and second Kings. And, uh, did we go through first and second Kings? Did we do that? Have I lost my mind? What did we do this past summer? Except for Second Samuel, thank you. Okay, we didn't get the Kings yet. Okay, thank you. All right. So in First and Second Samuel, it's getting harder to remember uh, exactly what we've done. In First and Second Samuel, we learned about uh, David choosing Jerusalem to be his city. And it's up on a mountain. It's, it's easily defended. And so here in these first five verses, this, this mountain of the Lord, it's speaking of Jerusalem, but it's also talking about something that's it's for the last times. It's eschatological. It's, it's for the end. It's sort of a super Jerusalem on the super mountain of the Lord. That Jerusalem of now, or Jerusalem of David's time, Jerusalem of Isaiah's time was pointing to what is to come. Isaiah says that this mountain of the Lord is going to happen in the latter days. So, so in the latter days, so not right now, Isaiah is saying, and not in a few days, Isaiah is not saying in a few days, he's talking about a later period of time. Now, I'm sure Isaiah couldn't have imagined how much later, because it's been thousands of years and we still wait for the fulfillment of these things, and we know that God is faithful. He's not slow. He's faithful in keeping His promises. But there is a sense in which this time He speaks of is fulfilled in the time of Jesus, and there's also a sense in which what He speaks of is to come to a final fulfillment on the last day, the very later times. And what will that final fulfillment look like? There are many great cities in the world today. New York and L.A., of course, but there are also great cities throughout Europe. There's great cities throughout Asia, great cities on every continent. There's Mexico City, there's Cairo, there's Lagos, and there's Sydney, and there's on and on. But the city that you and I long for is the city of God. The city of God. And John prophesies about the city of God in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verses 9 to 14. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. 
having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. There is the city of God to be positioned, coming down from heaven to be positioned on a high mountain, just like Zion, just like Jerusalem. Simply amazing. And to this city in the latter times, all people will go. Why will they go to that city? Why will they go up the mountain to that city? What is this vision that we're receiving about the end? Well, to hear the word of the Lord. To be instructed, they'll go there to understand life and to have uh, judgments decided. The scripture says the law is going to go forth from there. Now, now we tend to have a negative connotation of the law. In other words, we see it something as it's simply something that reigns us in, that stops us, that provides a boundary. And of course, there's truth to that. But for instance, my car says that it can go 120 miles per hour on the speedometer, right? But it's a four-cylinder. It's a little bit older. There's no way. That's a bunch of baloney. But can we actually put it to the test and find out? Well, not really. Why can't we? Well, because the law says we can't go above a certain speed. I really can't even try. But that's not what the law is. It's not simply restriction in the full, in the fullest sense of it. The Jewish word Torah that we translate into law has a strong sense of the idea of instruction. And instructions are what tell us how to use a machine for its built purpose. Instructions show us how to arrive at full potential. And so it is with God's law with us. God's law can't save us, but God's law can show us how to get the most from life. And that's a glorious thing. And so in the end, people will go to the city of God and they'll be instructed in who God is and in who we are and in how we should then live. And because of this, life will be all that it can be and life will be all that it should be. Don't you long for that? For life to be all that it should be? And because of this, there's not going to be any more war. War will be such a distant memory that the tools of war will be turned into tools of peaceful productivity. The reason for this is that God, through His good instruction, will resolve every dispute, every conflict. War never comes because there's always peace, because there is an ultimate truth, an ultimate judge, an ultimate uh, power. That says, no, you will not fight. Here's what will happen. This is the truth. This is how it's resolved. And it's now done and it's final. And everyone is reconciled to that. Wouldn't that be nice? If we could have that right now in this world. That's part of the, uh, of the age to come. That's part of what Adam and Eve would have had in the garden. And it's part of the age to come. That no dispute goes left unsettled. Imagine if we had that right now. Take the presidential election. Media has claimed the presidency for Joe Biden, but Donald Trump promises to fight in court. Would not it be most comforting right now to know that there is an authority that will step in, be utterly just, it can't even be questioned, completely impartial, and has complete ability to implement the true results? 
We try to replicate that with different systems here on earth, but it can't ever really be achieved in this world. But that's what's going to come. And wouldn't that be nice right now if we could have that? Like just, okay, stop everyone. Here's the deal. He won. It's settled. He's the president. Okay, good. Wouldn't that be nice? But here is what we are meant to understand right now. In the end, no falsehood, no spin, no bombast will stand before God. What a different world that will be. What a glorious world that will be. All justice will be served and the truth will never be hidden. That means in this presidential election and all the unsettling uncertainties right now, we need to know the end of the matter. The end of the matter is God's perfect rule emanating from His holy city on the holy mountain forever. Now, when you've got that in view, when you understand that, doesn't that help us right now in the here and now? Doesn't it say, doesn't it let you breathe a sigh of relief? Like, ah, okay. Then whatever happens now, even if it's unjust, even if it's imperfect, even if it's worse than imperfect, you know what? Let the nations rage. Let them rage. The king from heaven laughs. And we, you and I, his people, those that will come to the holy mountain, we have nothing to fear on any day of our entire lives. And that goes for the political climate in the U.S., but it also goes for everything else all the way down to however you may have been wronged or feel wronged by other people. Do you ever feel wronged by others? I certainly do. I, I certainly feel wronged by others from time to time. And, and oftentimes it seems like there will never be a satisfactory outcome. That someone can wrong you and not even know that they wrong you, let alone take responsibility for wronging you, or let alone make restitution for wronging you. It seems like that's the way of life, is to be wronged and to just carry on. And that, that thought in my own heart that it can seem like there will never be a satisfactory outcome, should that be my perspective? Not when I know the end. Right, brother, sister? Not when we know the end. Not if the ends direct the means, the ends being God's final full judgment on the earth that sets all things right. And my life is the means to bring exaltation to God in this time and in the time to come. Not if I know the ends and my life is the means to bring Him exaltation, then therefore I should be confident that in the end, God's truth, God's justice will reign and that whatever wronging I must put up with now is only temporary and rather short. And you should be confident of that too. And if you and I were confident about that, think about this, if we're confident about that, Imagine the peace that would reign in us and would reign around us. Because we'd be at peace. Because we'd have confidence in the vision to come, in the end. And one more note, we're talking about the end. And when the new city of God will be established on the new earth. But here's the truth. People can go to the mountain right now. I don't mean the physical uh, Jerusalem. I mean the true mountain of God. We can go to the holy city in the most critical way. Don't forget this. Jesus 
stood on that mountain, was cast outside of that holy city. Why? So that he could die there and so that sinners could be forgiven, sinners like us. Another way to think of sinners is to think of us as lawbreakers, like the Israelites who are being reprimanded, who are being rebuked in these passage, in this passage of Isaiah chapter 2. Those that have broken God's law, that's us too. And when we turn from our sin and we trust Jesus Christ, and you know what we've done? We've gone up the mount to where Jesus has died and where He rose again. We've gone up to the holy city and we've found forgiveness and we've been given peace. And now we're instructed in the way of God. Cast away every idol you trust because in the end, The Lord alone is going to be exalted. In the end, the Lord alone will be exalted. And we know that. We know the end, which is God on the mountain judging over the earth, His people coming to Him and being instructed, directs the means, our lives, the means of His exaltation. He's enabled us to be a means of His exaltation. And so the end of all things should direct our lives. But also keep in mind that every other thing we trust is of no account. Every other thing we trust, it's of no account. When you look at the first five verses, it's quite the stirring vision, and it's meant to be. It's rather remarkable, given the darkness of chapter 1, although there's hope there, and we talked about the hope through judgment, and given... Excuse me. What comes after what's going to come in these following chapters, the darkness, the judgment that the Israelites are facing because of their rebellion, given all that, it's rather remarkable that right here at the beginning, we're given such a vision of what's to come. The glorious end where God rules over all. It's a powerful thing. And when you look at that, it's it's quite the stirring vision. Someday God is going to establish that holy city once and for all. It will be glorious beyond anything we have ever considered to be glorious before. And if we've trusted Him, we're going to be part of that. What's truly amazing is that He's talking to His people, His people about this vision. His people. These people. He intends to involve and include His people. People, But at the time Isaiah is prophesying, they can hardly be called the people of God because they're so rebellious. And many of the reasons that are listed, the the things that describe their rebellion, their sin, are are listed here in verses 6 to 8. So I'll list a few of them all for you. First of all, they're full of things from the east. In other words, not just the goods of the things of the east. In other words, there's prosperity and they have everything they could ever want and they're, you know, they're, they're into all the craft things. You know, it's, it's fascinating how in our own culture, you know, it's, it's only been in, in the last 20 or so years this explosion of craft everything, right? Craft chocolates and craft coffees and craft beers and, and, and just boutique everything. And it's, it's pretty amazing. There's a lot to give God glory in the variety and, and the, the delights. But we can come to, to make life all about those things a little too easily, can't we? We could kind of focus and orient ourselves to those things. And so Israel, the people of God here, they're full of things from the East. This is, they've started to major in these things. But it's not just the goods and the craft things. It's the philosophies. And we see that going forward. It tells us that they have fortune tellers like the Philistines. God's people. 
the arch enemy of their earlier kings. They have fortune tellers. Not only that, but they strike hands with children of foreigners. In other words, they, they shake hands and say, put it there. In other words, they make deals. They make vows with people who do not share the Lord as the fundamental of their lives. And they get into vows with them, things like marriages, things like where they're going to live and what, who, what gods they're going to serve and how they're going to do business. The Scripture goes on to say that their land is full of silver and gold. There's incredible prosperity in Israel at the time. Their land is full of horses and chariots. In other words, there's incredible military strength, incredible war machinery in Israel at the time. And it also says their land is full of idols. In other words, they're bowing down to things that their own hands have made. The Israelites are prosperous. They're secure. They're knowledgeable of the ideas of the world. They're, they're, they're global citizens in that sense. They're shrewd. It's a picture of fullness in the worldly sense. They have everything they could desire. Honestly, not unlike the United States today with our prosperity. Notice something about these verses, though. Notice the tie or the closeness or the connection that idolatry has with shrewd business deals and prosperity and war machinery. If you look at verses 6 to 9, you see that idolatry is the last one listed, but, but it's right after those other ones. And we often tend to think of idolatry in the Old Covenant as involving actual idols. People, they made, you know, items of silver and gold or, or, or wood and they bowed down to them and they worshiped them and they set up shrines. And so we tend to think of these actual idols. And then when it comes to our time, we think of idolatry and we seek to apply idolatry simply in terms of, of heart issues. And by the way, I think that's, that's very good. That's, that's primarily right. So we may have this idea and, and, and sort of seeking to put sin to death and we're thinking about things at about a particular time when we got angry or maybe we lashed out at people, we, we might come to realize, oh my goodness, I idolize convenience and that's why I was angry when the line at the store was so long and I was, I was mean to my child. I was harsh with my child. And, and we might start putting some of those things together. And that's good. That's a good observation. I think we should try to understand what's going on in my heart. What was it that I was craving? What was I idolizing? But notice here as well, as we look at this list, that the ancient idolatry of the Israelites really doesn't look that much different than our idolatry today. And that makes sense because it's the same heart that it flows from. Knowledge, practice, business acumen, money, physical ability, military strength. These are all items we can foolishly place our trust in. And justice for the Old Covenant community, none of these are trustworthy enough to save or to keep your life. And so if we say we are Christian and yet we are trusting in idols... There's a discontinuity there that is, has got us on a train track to nowhere. Except maybe off a cliff. Can you see why I'm saying that every other thing we may trust is of no account? The things we trust today and turn into idols that we trust are the same as fallen humanity has ever done. And the outcome will always be the same. If, if we today as God's people are idolizing these kinds of things, uh, prosperity or power, might, position, uh, networking, 
our ability to, to talk or, or whatever abilities we may have. If, if those are the things that we're trusting in, good as, as many of those things are, if we're trusting in those things, our, our appearance, our looks, our style, our whatever, our family name, our position, what, whatever, our family relationships, where we live, our ethnicity, whatever, if we're trusting any of those things, it's ever the same as the ancient Israelites. And we can expect the same outcome and we can expect a rebuke from the Lord who loves us. Trusting these idols will fail us. I think there might be a good way to see if you're turning something into an idol, into an object that you trust for life. Consider any difficulty you're facing right now. Probably everyone in this room is facing some difficulty, some more than others. But consider any difficulty that you're facing. Now, if you find yourself internally, in your reasoning, thinking, I will overcome this difficulty because of blank, and that blank is anything other than the Lord, you may have to look twice at what you're trusting. Just think about that for a second, because I know you wouldn't do that sort of intentionally, and if I was talking with you, or one of your brothers and sisters were talking with you, you wouldn't say, I'm trusting such and such a thing. But that's why it's so important that you're honest in yourself, in your own soul. That when you think about that difficulty, and you start thinking of, okay, the reason I'm going to get out of this, or I'm going to get around it, or get through it, is because I've got this money in the bank. Or because... Um, I can talk my way out of it. Or I can bully my way out of it. You know, they wouldn't dare approach me or something like that. Or whatever that thing is, if it's other than the Lord, that may be exposing an idol. Because it, we, we know this, right? I mean, I don't, I can't, I'm not able to pay my bills just because I have the money in the bank. Just like I don't have food in front of me just because my wife went shopping and cooked it. That's a primary reason. Really, I should say it's a secondary reason, right? And I'm grateful for that reason, by the way. Don't get me wrong. I, I like that very much. But the primary reason I have food to eat is because God gave it to me to eat. The primary reason I could pay my bills is because God provided for me to have a job where I could be compensated, and that compensation was there, and then I could pay my bills. The reason I'll be able to navigate any difficulty is because God is at the bottom of all of it. And so, of course, it's not wrong to, to reconcile your checkbook and to make sure you can cover your bills or, or, or to, uh, to go shopping and get the food and then cook it and prepare. Of course we must do that. But what's at the bottom of it all? And too easily, dear friends, too easily, God fades away and our trust in these other things increase. So when you face that difficulty, what are you counting on so that you can overcome it? Maybe that will help you think it through. And I think you could turn that around a couple of different ways. For instance, if you, if you think things are going very well, why do you think they're going very well? What's behind it? Is it your ability? Is it your situation, your status in life? Is it luck? What's behind why you're why things are excelling in a certain way. Well, we know what's behind it. The Lord is behind it. And we should trust Him. Trust Him. 
Let me reread verses 12 to 16 for you. Verses 12 to 16. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the yokes of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And you get the idea here. By the way, this is quite the, um, the list that, that Isaiah gives, that the Lord gives to Isaiah. I mean, he's going on and on. In other words, it seems like Israel has a lot to be proud of. Sort of like, look at what our hands have accomplished. Right? Look at, look at what we've accomplished through the skill of our abilities and the wisdom of our thinking and our great planning and all that we have. Here in the U.S., you might take someone to Wall Street and, and say, look at the riches that are traded here in this country and then walk them around New York City and say, look at the architecture and the massive buildings here, how block after block. This is the only place on earth where Spider-Man could truly function, right? Because he needs all those buildings in order to swing around up there. And then, Bring them to a military base and say, look at the massive power of the U.S. military. Be kind of like that. Look how proud we are. Look what we've accomplished. Look what we built with our own hands. But each of these things, as impressive as they are, the Scriptures are telling us, are of no account. Not in comparison. Not in comparison to what the Lord says. Not in comparison to what all of this is meant for. Cast away every idol you trust. Cast them away because in the end, the Lord alone will be exalted. The Lord alone is going to be exalted. And so we, we've seen that the end, which is this, this glorious mountain, the city of God, it, it, it should direct the means, which is our lives are the means of ex, ex, exalting Christ. So let that direct us. And then every other thing we trust is of no account. We've seen that. Now we should take a look at this. What seems so simple and yet what Isaiah, what the Lord feels so, is so important to point out to us and call out very clearly, repetitively, the Lord alone is exalted. One of those ironies of sinful pride is this. At the very moment you exalt in sinful pride, at that very moment, at that very moment, you've been brought to nothing. You've been humbled. You've been humiliated. You might not know it yet, but that's what is happening. Think, think about this. Have you ever lashed out in anger? And, and you just knew it was the right thing to do. You're in, that, you're in that flow, that midst of anger, and you feel so justified. You, in fact, you're certain the Lord would approve of your anger, and you're, you're lashing out, and you're working in the flow of that. And, 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 then, and then afterward, a little bit of time goes by, and you start to question yourself and think, Maybe that wasn't so good. And then the Holy Spirit continues to do His work, and you begin to realize, you know what, I wasn't justified at all. In fact, I was wrong. The Holy Spirit works in you, and you realize you were downright wrong, and you need to ask forgiveness. And when that happens, you see, this is how sin works. Right? There's, there's pride, and so we get, we get angry, we feel justified, and we lash out. And in that moment that we're lashing out, we feel so powerful and so exalted. We're exalted in pride, but the truth of the matter is we're, we're bowing down to an idol. 
We're actually humiliated in that moment. Others might see it. We might not see it. God sees it. But that's how it works. That's how sin works. Look again at verse 9 and following. This is right after Israel. It says Israel bows down to idols. Look at at verse 9 and following. So man is humbled. Each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Isaiah there is pleading the Lord. You see his insertion. Verse 10. And then he's talking to Israelites. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You see, they're brought low by their very bowing. When we have an idol, especially, think of this, we have an idol, we might not identify it, we're not being honest with ourselves, we're not casting it out, we're keeping it, we're cultivating it, guess what? We're bowing down to that thing instead of the Lord. And when we're bowing down to that thing, guess what? We may feel exalted, we may feel exuberant, we may feel like, oh man, this is great, it's going great. And what we're doing is we're bowing down to an idol. And guess what? In reality, we're licking the dust of the earth. We've bowed down before something that's false and with our face to the ground before it instead of to God. And that happens to us every time we sin. And if we saw the truth, we'd be running away from that sin, recognizing that it brings the terrible wrath of God. We'd want to hide ourselves in the caves. Humility is an essential virtue for humans and especially for Christians. Why? Why is humility so critical? Because we know that we are not the one in charge. We are not the ones calling the shots. We don't get to make that decision. We don't get to say what the rest of this day will be filled with. It's up to Him. We're not the ones with a plan. We're not the ones deciding the outcome. That's not us. We are the creatures of, we're the servants of, we're the helper of the one and the only God. Therefore, Humility. Humility must be the path that we walk on. All of that knowledge about God and about who we are should inform all of life. And not in some sort of showy humility. Not not in a humility that is calculated to cause others to look at us. But in a humility that most people will never commend. Because they can't see it. They don't recognize it. But that God sees every second of and rewards That kind of humility. Humility is essential for us. Look at the last verse of Isaiah chapter chapter 2. Verse 22. Chapter 2, 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Part of what we need to draw from this verse is that all of Israel's rebellious idolatry in every way was motivated by what? By a regard for man. That's why he's telling them, stop regarding man. Stop regarding man. So therefore, what's going on in their idolatry? They're regarding man. That's what they're doing. They were living their lives out of a comparison to other people. They thought of life as entirely controlled by their status, by the status of their relationship to other humans, to other people, to other created beings. What a terrible mistake. What a miserable way to live. This is not the primary thing that we have. This is the primary thing that we have. 
We have peace with God in Jesus Christ. We've been brought to the mountain where instead of us being destroyed by God's wrath, Jesus was. So that when he took up his life, we could be given life as well. We start with our orientation here, and then that sets all of this orientation in the right perspective, in the right place. Helps us interpret what's going on around us and the relationships we have. Helps us understand what we should get involved in, who we should get involved in, how we should get involved in, what we shouldn't get involved in, where we should draw a line, where, where we need to be flexible. And part of what we need to draw is this idea that they're regarding people so much this is a terrible mistake and it leads to idolatry because if I care mostly about what other people think of me guess what I'm going to do I'm going to I'm going to go after the things that I think that they value if I if, if I'm mostly concerned about your opinion of me then I want to know what do you think what do you think I have to be so that your opinion of me goes up and then I'm going to try to become what you want me to become. What a miserable way to live. There's no life in that. Think of celebrity. Think of the celebrity. Here's a person whose whole aim in life is to become famous. In other words, to be known by other people. What a foolish desire. What a pit of fears and anxieties that would be. Of course these people are on, on antidepressants and every kind of uh, psychotropic medication. Of course they're, they're, they're self-medicating with all kinds of substances. Now, we've been given the gift that none of us in this room are celebrities. At least I don't, I don't think so. I might be wrong. But I don't think any of us here are celebrities. But, you know, we can do the same thing in our smaller worlds. Teens are famous for what we call cliques, right? A group that no other teen can penetrate. That, that's a problem. But, but let's not fool ourselves. This, this problem is not restricted to teens, we're all in danger of living life oriented primarily to our status with other people. Isaiah 2.22 again. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Now did you notice that verses 11 and 17 are quite similar as we were reading through that? I know it's a lot so you might have missed it. But verses 11 and 17 are almost verbatim. So, chapter 2, verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 17. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. See, in the end, the Lord will be exalted alone. Our Lord Jesus has been lifted up and He will be lifted up. Every other thing that we trust that will come to nothing. And since that is the case, let us exalt Him now and trust Him alone. Let's exalt Him in our lives and trust Him alone now. I'd like to ask Doug to come. In just a moment we'll sing a song. Cast away, cast away every idol you trust. Because in the end, the Lord alone will be exalted. And so, here is another call. You've heard them before from this pulpit. You've heard them from other teachers. You've heard them for decades now at Crossway Church. Here's another call to get rid of any idols in our lives. And do you ever wonder why there is so much emphasis in the Old Testament about idolatry? Well, here's why. Because God's people do so much of it. 
we do a lot of uh, idolizing, a lot of idol worship. That's why it's there so clear in the Old Covenant, so that we, we don't think that we're immune from it or it doesn't affect us. And, and the reality is it's a deadly thing. It's a deadening thing. It's a deadly thing. It's like playing with a loaded gun or eating small amounts of poison every day. The question is not whether you and I have idols, dear friends. God's Word is very clear about this. The only question is whether or not we're going to be honest about it and whether we're going to cast them away. Whether we're going to stop, stop bowing down and licking the dust of the earth. Whether we're going to look up to heaven and give God all the glory that He really is due and He will have in the end. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 20 to 21. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. See, that day's coming. So let's do this instead. Let's cast away our idols today. Let's cast them away today and exalt the Lord before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Would you sing with, stand with us, please? For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.